how do you do? This is something sort of unusual in the way of hillbilly music. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast with you as always is Bob, live in the lounge, staring at the Ouija board. I guess the year is 1993, 1994. For my listeners out there, you know I'm not too good at math. I think it's my first day of um, high school, first day getting on the big guy, the big kid bus, if you will. I lived um, right behind, I guess, Panera Bread. It used to be called Shopping Bag on the cusp of Country Hawking and White Marsh. So we'd be going around the neighborhood, we'd be picking up a whole bunch of different people. I mean, for those of you who have seen Forrest Gump, yes, it's very intimidating when you get on the bus for the first time. You're new to a high school, you're new to a, a different environment, a new building, a bunch of different students to interact with. And I remember distinctly getting on the bus, walking up, taking a seat, and I heard something behind me. I, I kept hearing what sounded like drumsticks. And I turned and I looked and I saw this guy in the back seat of the bus. He had his legs up and he was playing, I guess, like a four on the floor, if you will, with his drumsticks. And he did it almost the whole way to school. And I'm thinking to myself, like, man, like this guy's a drummer. He's got long hair. He's a musician. Turns out that he was uh, my neighbor. He lived right down the street from me. Uh, he'd been in bands, I guess, most of his adult life, like myself, and um, our careers had crossed paths over, paths over the years. His bands and my bands would uh, play shows together around the area. Recently, we've uh, reconnected on the social media network, and uh, we decided to do a, a Zillcast. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show Mr. Steve Fessler. How you doing, man? Doing well. Glad to be here. So um, I guess we should just start off with, uh, I mean, like, obviously your last name's Fessler, but who was the first person to start calling you Zill? Uh, well, I had a friend in high school who was who was new to the school, and um, he, he wasn't very smart, but he sat behind me in a lot of my classes, and just being a, a drummer in high school, I wanted, I kind of wanted everybody to know that, so I wore a lot of, like, drum-style clothing, clothing whether it would be uh, a jacket or a hat. And a lot of times those things would say Zildjian on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So whenever he wanted to get my attention for like an answer on a test or something, he would go, Zildjian, Zildjian. <laughs> and that got shortened to Zil. And then like, my friends around me started calling me that, and it, and it just always stuck. And now I think more people know me as Zil than, than actual my real name. So I, it's kind of like part of your last name, though, like Fessler. Like I always thought it was that, but it's, I guess, a play on the words of the, the drum company. Yeah, that's what it is, yeah. So, take me back in time. Like, when was the first time, you know, you, you picked up sticks? And, like, what made you want to be a drummer? Who were your inspirations? Uh, well, my father was a drummer. So, um, it was just it was just part of the household. He was always lugging his drums in and out of the house and, and going and playing gigs. Pretty much like what I'm doing now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just, just knowing that he was in a band and of his performances and stuff and play them and it, it just that set me off so I mean I, I pretty much started playing or I, I should say I wouldn't really call it playing I started banging on things with sticks at like two years old wow. and uh, he, he would just give me his old drums and stuff and then later on in life he gave me his actual drums when he when he decided he didn't want to play anymore and uh, yeah that's where it all started so I mean your, your father I guess would be your greatest inspiration drumming um what, what types of bands was he in um at, at that time he was mostly playing classic rock um i guess it was at that time it was just rock <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh <clears throat> rock and roll and, and he was playing a lot of uh country and western uh you know the good stuff willie nelson and, and all that, that old older stuff and um that's what really got me set off on the path that i took so, I mean, learning the drums at two, I mean, like, when he gave you the kit, like, what, are you, like, eight years old, seven years old? Well, no, he held out for a while. He, he would he would build little kits out of old drums and that I would that I would go on and just bust all the heads on. But um, I, he, he actually made me take lessons for a long time before it was actual drum, you know, get the real drum set deal. So I wasn't until I was, like, about ten years old. Where, so, uh, like, he basically straight Mr. miyagi you. He made you wax on, wax off for quite a bit of time before he actually put you into the tournament. Absolutely, yeah. So I had to learn, you know, I had to take 
you know, lessons at White Marsh Elementary, learning how to play just a snare drum and all that stuff before I could actually, it wasn't until I started taking private lessons on a drum set that I actually got to play his. You know, I remember that, uh, that room at White Marsh Elementary taking music class. It had really high ceilings. It had good acoustics in there. Yeah, yeah. So, except, except like, I wanted to play drum set, not one snare drum. <laughs> yeah, right. I think the first instrument I learned to play was a snare drum, and it was just like so limiting. I'm like, why can't I have more? You know, like, <laughs> like how many flares can I do? You know, like, but you um, more. You gotta have more. So I guess like uh, you know, as you moved into your like adolescence years, you start you know playing with other musicians. Like, what was the first group you ever played with? Well, actually, I used to put together little shows when I was um, probably not much older than nine or ten. I would put on shows down in down in my basement with whoever could pick up any instrument. We would we would gather like a keyboard and old guitar. I had a I had an amplifier with a with a microphone, so someone would attempt to sing, and we would just put on shows for my parents. <laughs> That's the way to do it, though. You know, I mean, everyone else's parents. <laughs> now, like from what I remember, I think I at one point. I had seen the drum room. Like, did your dad build that drum room for you? Like, it almost was like a like a miniature venue that you guys would put these shows on in, right? Yeah. Well, what what happened was he got so tired of you know Sunday band practices every week for four hours, and I would play. I would come home from school. I would come home off that bus that you, that we shared together, and I would play from the moment I got off the bus till like they would tell me to stop at nighttime. And yeah, I think he just got kind of tired of that. Plus, he's very handy, and he wanted to extend his garage. So, um, in, in order to extend the garage, it, it made this little room underneath the garage. And he was like, "That's perfect. I'm gonna put I'm gonna put my son and all his long haired creepy friends out there, and they can just make noise out there till two o'clock in the morning." So, did he soundproof the room? It was totally soundproof. It, it was it was detached from the house, and it was a cement room. And then we went inside and, and kind of just soundproofed it even more with you know, carpeting and whatever we could put on the walls. And I do remember, like, you know, um, right across the street was uh, Cedar Grove Park. You know, I'd be riding my bike past there. I remember on occasion the cops would be there, like, all the time. Do you remember the first time the, the police department visited you for a, a noise violation? Um, I don't know if I remember the first time. They were, they were there so often. Because we would play with the doors open or I would play with the doors open and people at, the, at Cedar Grove Park would, would call the cops and complain uh, usually they were pretty cool they would come over and listen for a while and then they were like hey listen you know turn it down a little bit <laughs> shut those doors yeah I remember that I mean I remember distinctly like weekly almost seeing because there's like this little cul-de-sac like parking lot and the cops would always be parked there busting your chops yeah. um, I was trying to get discovered you know so is that why you left the door open so everyone could hear it? Yeah, well, it would get hot in there too. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I like it. I, you know, I like that aesthetic. Um, so when was the first time that you like that you're doing these shows for your parents? You're doing these shows with your friends. When was the first? What was the first band that you you formed? The first real band was a band called Dead End. Um, it was it was a couple friends from school. Um, actually, it was. One one of the guys in the band was Owen Biddle, who played bass. He actually went on to play with the Roots and was on Jimmy Fallon and all that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we used to just we used to throw these shows in that room that we're talking about, which could probably only hold you know twenty people, but we would probably get forty or fifty in there. <laughs> it would just spill out into the backyard. Mm-hmm. But we really we really just kind of ran our own club. Like we um, we put flyers up around town and, and at school and stuff, and it was just basically like a like a party I mean uh, minus the alcohol but um, you know kids would just come from the school and they would come see us play and we would play all night long I mean we would play covers we'd play originals and uh, I mean we had lights set up we had a full sound system and um, that eventually built I mean we, we it started to to outgrow that room and, and my father had a, uh, a vacant restaurant on one of his properties up on Ridge Pike and um, he's like well, why don't you move it up there and we just went up, went up there. We gutted the whole building out. We, uh, we again, we put in a light system, a sound system. We used to we used to sell snacks, slim gyms and stuff. And we oh would just <laughs> we would throw these whole shows. Entrepreneur. Yeah, it was great. I really learned a lot about business. Right, you know, not even out of high school yet. So I I didn't know like um I didn't know that you had the band dead end, but I have a different type of 
perspective on it, I remember uh, getting old enough to uh, cross over to Butler and started, you know, ex- exploring the shopping centers back in the day. And I remember stumbling upon this uh, vacant restaurant, which is, I guess, if you're at, like, if you're on the the ridge now, it's to the left of where Rita's Water Ice is. And I remember seeing these tapestries in the in the window. I remember seeing the band's name dead end everywhere, and thinking like, is this like a retail store? Is this a dead end like type of like head shop? Is this like what is this? You know what I mean? So like, it always piqued my interest because I was like, well, what are these guys doing? Um, you know, the band, um, I, I guess we're, this is like back in 93, right? Yeah, it was, It was. I mean, it was before then, but 93 is when we were doing a lot of stuff there. And then it continued probably for about a, you know, two years after that. And who the band consisted of what members? Uh, well, it was myself, it was Owen Biddle on bass, it was Jonathan Williams, who was from the King of Prussia area on guitar. And then we had a... a a female singer who was a little bit older than us, and her name was Ange Lambert. We're very fortunate enough tonight on the Bobcast to actually take a listen to one of the tracks from Dead End. We've gone through the archives, and we've pulled out a track called Blue Tattoo here on the Bobcast.
back here on the Bombcast. That was Blue Tattoo by The Dead End. Uh, Zill, like, so how long did the band last for? I would say it was probably like a good five years or so. And what did it do? Just like hit the wall or people like graduate from school? Yeah, it was like, you know, one guy didn't really want to do music anymore. Um, uh, the singer wanted to go off and do marine biology, I believe. I don't know where she ended up. Um, and it was really after that, it was just Owen and I. And we just kept playing together. We went to, we went to Berkeley College of Music together. And uh, we're really the only two guys that kept going. So, like, after Dead End, you go to school. Um, in, in Berkeley, did you guys have any bands going on? We were always playing with people. I mean, it was never, like, a, a set band. But, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, I think it's, like, every night you get together and shift whoever you can. So sometimes it would be, you know, pop music. Sometimes it would be jazz. Um, no, no bands, per se, like where we were getting out. So once you get back from uh, Berkeley, you return to the Philadelphia area, you formulate a new band, or you join a new band. Tell us a little bit about the origins of K-Floor. So yeah, I was going to Berkeley to be a, to be a touring musician, basically, and I got a call from these guys in Philadelphia. They were in a band called Killing Floor at the time, and it was just kind of a hot uh, blues band. Um, but the, you know, there was a really great guitar player, bass player was amazing, and uh, it was also they also used a a real B three Hammond B three with the Leslie cabinet. And all. Um, but they were looking to uh, get a new drummer, and they had we had some mutual friends, and they gave me a call. And these guys were playing like every night of the week and um, making good money, and they and then they made a drum, and I was like definitely. So I basically left Berkeley to join K Floor. And it was just a whirlwind right away. I mean, it was just playing every night, um, living the dream, basically. <laughs> but you you guys were based out of Philadelphia for that, right? Yeah, I mean, two of the guys in K Floor were from Kansas City, <clears throat> and they had moved here. Um, really, they just kind of pointed at a spot on the map, and they were like, well, Philadelphia seems cool because it's a major city, and they have. You know, they, they have a, a, a music scene, but it's also close to Baltimore, it's close to New York. So it was really just kind of like a blind point at the map, and, and they, they moved here. But yeah, they were based out of Philly at that point. Well, like back then, what was the Philly Philly music scene like? <clears throat> it, it was, it, it, it had like a, it felt like it was building. Um, you know, back in the 80s, the Philly music scene was, was really cool. You know, you had bands like the Hooters and, and you know, groups like that. And then it kind of died off, and then, it, it, but there felt like there was this energy, like it was, like it was coming back, and um, and I think it did. Where'd you guys play at? What types of venues would uh, K Floor play at? Well, when we started, it was like a, it was a working band. Um, like I said, we were playing. We, the only night off we would ever have was Monday night, and I mean, we would do two shows on Friday even, and. Um, you know, we would just, we would play at that time, and when we first started, we would play a lot of blues clubs or, um, you know, occasionally uh, original places like uh, Pontiac Grill, which was originally Dobbs and then became Dobbs again, Grape Street, places like that. But as we, as we progressed, we started playing bigger rooms like Theater Living Arts, and uh, we would play a lot of the uh, Jam on the River festivals and, and, and just bigger rooms in general. Now you guys, I think recently I remember reading that there was a reunion at uh, the Grape, right? Yeah, we do reunions like every two years, basically, and we usually do them at the Grape Room, which we always consider that place home. You know, it was, we played there when it was a Grape Street pub. Um, you know, and that's just kind of where we where we got our start. We even have a, a live album that we cut from the Grape Street pub. It's just a, it's just a microphone, you know, going to a mini disc recorder. And um, we, uh, we we just recorded a show one time there and, and started selling CDs. So that's just a place that we always like to go back to. And I think our fans, they like to come back and see us there, you know, if they can get a babysitter, you know, the whole nine years. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I really like playing there myself. Um, Scooter was one of the first people to actually sponsor the Bobcast and put a link on his webpage. Every yeah. time uh, any of my incarnations of bands play, we usually choose there just because... He's just such a great guy, you know what I mean? Like, he, yeah, he, I go way back with Scooter, and, and he 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 was in he was in Stargazer Lily. He knows what it's like to be an artist. He treats the artists well. 
you make sure that you have a good sound guy. You know, it's it's just a it's just a comfortable place. It's, it's home. <laughs> it's home. Yeah, it really it's a comfortable is. Comfortable place to play. Well, let's take a listen to uh, a track from K. Floor. What can you tell us about the song "Will I Stay"? Um, "Will I Stay" was one of our um, more popular songs. Um, it's it's uh, I don't know. It's pretty self-explanatory. Um, you know, the K. Floor was like a really jammy kind of band. A lot of a lot of blues jams, and I think this song kind of captures. Um, you know, especially what Nick Snedlin, the lead singer and guitar player, could do with both his voice and his guitar. All right, this is Will I Stay by Kefler on the Bobcast. Zill in the lounge. K-Floor never really necessarily broke up. You guys still do reunion shows. But once again, your musical career, you move on. And when you move on, I guess uh, the observation on my end is not knowing exactly what you're doing, but seeing on my way down to the park this bus 
start to um, be created. This, I guess, I mean, it, I'm going to say a school bus, but I mean, it became later known as the Great Ghost. And yeah. this bus was infamous with people in my grade. You know, we were yeah. into punk rock. We were into, you know, grunge and all this stuff. And like right down the street was a tour bus that was being created. Uh, it's a band called Pepper's Ghost. Um, I, I've had my own uh, assumptions as to the origin of yeah. the band's name. Uh, what can you tell yeah. the Bobcast listeners about Pepper's Ghost? Yeah. First of all, do you know I used to be your paper boy? I, I recall that? that, yes. I recall that, yes. <laughs> I forgot, uh, you know what, now I remember that. I mean, paper boy, if you told a kid today that there was a paper boy, they, they'd look at you and be like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yes, you could get paid to drive around on a bicycle and, yeah. and lug, lug like, you know, like a big bag around your neck. Right, right. And the game was awesome too, by the way, for Nintendo. Yeah. I forgot all about it, but God, that, I yeah, love that there, game. There was the there was the game Paper Boy, and for your listeners who don't know what that game is, if you would you were delivering newspapers, and if you if you like broke a window with the newspaper, or if you missed the house, like you, you just forgot to shoot the paper out when you were going by, <clears throat> you would go on to the next day, and that house would be black and like haunted and all scary. God, I love and, that game. Yeah, and that's what your neighbor was like, by the way. Um, so that's where we can get into that. I mean, we can get into that right now. So, like, I I thought when I'd seen you years later, my neighbor's name was Pepper. The yeah. band we're talking about here is Pepper's Ghost. My neighbor, Pepper, growing up, I mean, literally, it's straight out of a George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, eighty style film of a villain that lives in your neighborhood. And I he mean, drove, he drove a hearse, didn't he? He drove a hearse, and this guy, Pepper. Now, my parents tell me stories in the late 70s when they moved into the house. He had stolen all the batteries out of their cars. He would walk up and down the street at night staring at people. And it became known that he was into Satan worshiping. And apparently he would, um, there's rumors, and I I really can't verify this, but he would take dogs and strap them to trees and burn them. I mean, terrible stories as a kid. And then, you know, this is all kind of, like like uh, it validated when he buys a hearse and in the hearse he has uh, World War II type propaganda skulls and you know uh-huh. just horrifying so as a kid like on my bicycle I, I'd, I'd ride the shit I, I, I'd pedal as hard as I could to get past his house and um, yeah. eventually he um, he took his own life um, I, I was on the patio of my house I remember it well I think I might have been eight or so my grandma was watching me and all these uh, paramedics show up, cop cars, and he had taken his own life. So yeah, and and uh, the funny thing is, uh, is I I delivered him to Times Herald. So even though he's in all this crazy stuff, he still was curious what the uh, local news was in in, in the Plymouth Red Marsh area. <laughs> he might have been trying to check up on himself in a way, but I mean, you know what the I, you know what the worst part is? Oh my God, I, I'm putting this all together now too. Is like, okay, so uh, one of the Bobcast listeners, his name's uh, his nickname's Token. We'll just put that out there. Token uh, moved into Pepper's house in like the year 1992, I'm going to say. And like a dick, I told him, <laughs> I told him Pepper committed suicide in his bedroom. And like, I scared the shit out of him, I think. I mean, I felt so, I mean, we're cool now. And this kid's like a really like shining bright light, real positive. Yeah. But man, like there doesn't, there's a, not a moment that goes by where I'm just like, man, I really wish I didn't tell these nice people about Pepper. being in Pepper's Ghost, um, we would do a lot of, we did a lot of press, and um, a lot of times I got, I got, I had the job of being the person that would be interviewed, and um, the one question that we would always get asked is, where did you guys come up with your name, Pepper's Ghost? And, the, I mean, the true origin of the story is, it's a stage illusion, it's, it's a stage illusion used in, you know, lights and mirrors and stuff that this guy, John Henry Pepper, back in the late 1800s created. So basically he would bounce, he would have someone off the stage and he would bounce light off of them and then uh, set up a couple mirrors so that the image would show up on stage. And just, you know, with it going through the mirrors and stuff, it would look like a ghost. It was just a faded image of what was actually happening off stage. I got so tired of telling that story and then you just, you I ran into you at some point where you just told me the story that you just, mentioned about your neighbor and I ended up changing the story. Did you tell people? Did you tell people that? I started telling people that. I was like, I used to deliver papers. 
That's great. But yeah, I mean, it, it had it, it was a great band name. Um, first off, um, so what we're talking about about John Henry Pe- uh, Pepper was that. I mean, uh, I imagine most Bobcast listeners have been to the Haunted Mansion, and when you get to the part where the cauldrons slide past this large living room and you see all the ghosts dancing, you see the ghosts playing piano, it's actually using a very similar technique that John Henry did um, of just basically reflecting light. Right, yeah. So, I mean, I also recall, I guess, like in the early thousands, like, like you said, like you guys did a lot of press, like Pepper's Ghost was like the band in Philadelphia. Like you guys had, you know, the Great Ghost. You know, you had, uh, I guess, some of the best band shots. I mean, you toured. Tell the Bobcast listeners a little bit about the Great Ghost. Like, did you build that? Your dad helped you make that. Yeah, um, my my dad uh, at the time owned the school bus business, and. Um, he was basically getting rid of a bus and gave it to us pretty cheap and we proceeded to completely gut the thing out. We took all the seats out, we took all the windows out, we sheet metaled over. Um, I got my hands on an old mobile trailer that somebody was selling and we took that and gutted it all out. So we took the took the oven out and the um, all the appliances, the refrigerator, all that stuff. And we put it all in this bus. I mean, it was a real deal. I mean, we had a generator in there. We had running water. We put bunk beds in. We had a PlayStation, um, flat screen TV. Um, you name it, it was in there. But it was it was a it was a school bus, and we painted it gray, and we just started calling it the Gray Ghost. And um, that's really what we when we first started touring. That's what we that's what we used. We, we had a trailer hitch on it, and we pulled around. Sammy Hagar's Cabo Wabo trailer that he had given the Silver Tide and they had given us and uh, we just went all over and that's really where, where we got started. Yeah, it was legendary. I mean, all the kids were like, what What are these guys doing? Like, what What goes on in that bus? You know what I mean? Like, for, you know, a kid in the suburbs to have, like, that just down the, the, the block, it was, uh, was kind of yeah. awesome. I mean, uh, so in uh, 2001, the album Opening Night comes out. Where'd you guys record that at? Opening night was recorded at the Trocadero, um, which actually happened before I was in the band officially. Um, <clears throat> but they, it was it was part of a, uh, a, a, a band. Uh, it was called Band to Band Combat. It was basically a uh, competition, and um, you know Pepper's Ghost threw it down at the Trocadero, and they got they put together this huge orchestra of all these friends that we had, and. Um, you know, they took all the Pepper's Ghost songs, but made them like almost like show tune arrangements with strings and horns and percussion, and recorded the whole show live um, at the Trocadero, and then proceeded to release it. And um, yeah, it's really a neat album. It's um, you know, it just has that has the Pepper's Ghost you know songwriting quality, but it also has like a bit of the, you know theater uh, feel to it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, on drums, that's Mike Smith on that album? Mike Smith, yeah, he played on that good old Schmitty. Mm-hmm. And Owen Biddle was uh, also the bass player in that band as well? He wasn't yet. Owen and I came kind of later as a package deal. Okay, um, I see. Yeah, at that time there was a guy named Bach who was playing bass. So, I guess the album that um, I, I moved back, I think, from um, Los Angeles with my band Downtown Harvest to Philadelphia and the Philadelphia music scene was... It was doing well at that time. Uh, Jackson from 93.3 WMMR was doing lots of uh, local shot series events. Uh, you would hear, you know, local bands every night, 6 p.m. And I start seeing these posters, you know, for an album called Shake the Hand That Shook the World. And you guys went full steam with that one in 2005. What do you remember about that year? <laughs> Not a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that, that was, I mean, we had gone on, I mean, just to, to, to backtrack a little bit, um, the guys in Pepper's Ghost, they, um, they had, a couple of them had approached me and said, you know, I, we would really like you and Owen to join us and, you know, be the rhythm section. And, um, you know, we joined and we, we, we played for a while. Um, we had the same entertainment lawyer as actually the Silver, as Silver Tide and the Roots and, um, a guy named Brad Rubens. And, um, 
you know, we had played for a while together and then Owen, Owen was always more of an R&B guy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, he was like, you know what, I really don't want to do the rock and roll thing anymore. And he had asked Brad if he could help get him, you know, into something that way. And he, he actually went on to play with the, the Roots had like a little side project with some other people called the uh, Jazzy Fat Nasties. And, I remember uh, them. Like, I mean, I haven't thought of them in years. Yeah. So he was playing with them for a long time. And then just so happened that the, uh, the bass player position in the Roots opened up. So it was just like a, you know, natural... You know, he just scooted himself right in there. Yeah, I actually, um, um, I know uh, Owen, he used to play um, his bass with a friend of mine, Chris Homan. He was a drummer uh, in country, and uh, I re- my first impressions of Owen were, I mean, he played a five-string, which was intimidating. It was the first time i ever seen anybody do it, and he was a fantastic slap bass player, so I, I can see that R&B feel that he yeah, uh, wanted yeah. to develop. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we eventually picked up, after Owen, we picked up uh, Dave Hartley. And uh, from there, that's when we started getting a lot of attention um, as far as like record label attention and, and you know people kind of scouting us out. Um, and we ended up signing with a record company called Hybrid, um, which was kind of an independent record label, but they were under you know, Sony uh, RED distribution. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> they ended up setting us up with uh, famous producer Andy Johns. Um, I mean, he, anyone who doesn't know Andy Johns, I mean, he's done everything. Just, just you know, look him up. <laughs> just Google him. I mean, he, he was the engineer on pretty much all the classic Stone albums, all the classic um, Zeppelin albums. And the man had stories like you would not believe. I mean, he was telling the story about the first time that Keith Richards shot him up with heroin. <laughs> and he said, and he said, <laughs> now, Andy, you're a man. <laughs> Is that what he said to him? <laughs> yeah. Andy's like, thanks. Years later, trying to kick the habit. <laughs> so I'm looking right now at his anyway. uh, his discography. I mean, there there is literally too many to list. I mean, I'm looking at uh, albums from Cinderella, Rod Stewart, uh, Bobby Whitlock, uh, uh-huh. Doug Altrich, L.A. Guns. Wow. Yeah. So... And he was just naturally a Stones fanatic. I mean, he was a, a kid when he was recording this. And you guys, I mean, like, you, you didn't know? really have, like, a, you sounded like the Stones, but, I mean, you also had the benefit of two lead singers, which was something different, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, that was something you really didn't see. They were brothers, so it really yeah. put a unique spin on it, and, like, I, I feel as if that was, in itself, like, really unique. Yeah, I mean, it, it was the brothers, plus they were huge on the Beatles, so it was like vocal harmonies were, were focused, songwriting, short songs with, with good hooks. I mean, that was what it was all about. And Andy just loved us. I mean, he he kind of unofficially said that we were his third favorite band ever to work with. And it was no secret that his first two were, you know, the Stones and Zeppelin. So we were there in good company. And, That's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, working with him was just a whirlwind, and, and, and he's a big reason why that album sounds the way it does. I, I kind of butted heads with him because he's such a fanatic about getting a good drum sound. I mean, he's he's um, responsible for when the levee breaks. I mean, it's like the most famous recorded drum sound. So he was the one time. who actually set up the mics in that room. I, the room that they recorded when the levee breaks is, um, there's several floors and the ceiling's really, really high. And it's it's a lot of kick, right? I mean, like it's basically uh-huh. just kick drums, like you know, to, like all the way up. Yeah, yeah, and 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 then just the crazy delay that's going on. So how yeah. did you how did you butt heads with him? I would butt heads with him because he was such a pain in the ass. I mean, he would, um, you know, he would he would he, he's so big on drum sounds and he's so big on drum performance, and he feels like that is the sound. And he's and he's right, you know. In the long run, he was right, but at the time. I wanted to kill him because he's so he feels like that's the foundation of the, any recording so like he would make me play a song over and over and over again and then oh okay let's try a different snare drum you know what I don't like that kick drum let's, let's fly in a different kick let's um let's tear down the whole set and I want you to move it to another part of the studio Jeez. and it's just constantly constantly this kind of stuff and I would listen to a performance of mine that I would be pretty proud of and he was like Okay, do it again. 
<laughs> so what like, would he do? Like, would he splice it up and like put in like Tom's from a different take, or would he would he go for like? No, a, no, he no, he would he would make you have a, a full full performance. You know, it wasn't like. Oh wow! Okay, um, so he would want to get know, the drum take perfect each time. Yeah, and we were cutting the tape too, so I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like Pro Tools where you just kind of do everything to a grid. Yeah, would you guys record um, that on real to real? Real to real, we did. We we uh, it was real to real twenty uh, twenty four track two inch real. Um, and it was synced up to a Pro Tools. So basically, the drums and all the bass would be on the tape, and if there mm-hmm. was any additional, if there were any tracks left, which there really wasn't with Andy, because he might hop and bottom of every drum, <laughs> and uh, if there was anything left, he would throw some other stuff. He would put as much as he could on the tape to get that natural, you know, warm sound. And, uh, he, you know, he was responsible for how that album sounds, and, and, and in the long run, um, I'm, I'm really proud of that album. It's, um, you know, we had a couple songs on there that got on, on the billboard. Yeah, you uh, scored a number one hit single in Canada for uh, You're In My Heart, if I'm uh, not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm, I'm sure it was only number one for as long as the uh, magazine was printed, but <laughs> so, <laughs> it was up there. Like, what, what was the name of the studio again that you guys recorded in? It was called Shorefire, and it was in Long Branch, New Jersey. Okay. Um, so this album comes out and you guys, you know, hit the ground running. I remember, um, seeing the ghost, like on the webpage, you know, touring around America. I, I recall, I think it broke down eventually, right? It, it, it finally made its, its last leg. <laughs> yeah, that, that bus wasn't, wasn't happy traveling all through the mountains, you know, <laughs> through the Rocky Mountains and stuff. <laughs> what, what can you tell us about the final days of the Great Ghost? Well, we were, um... We were out on tour at this point, uh, promoting Shake the Hand and Shake the World. We had we had a lot of regional success. Um, Y100 used to really back us up. Y100, uh, yeah, um, I forgot all about those guys, man. Jeez. Yeah, they used, they used to have a segment every day that was called, um, I think it was called 7 at 7 or something like that. And it was like the seven most requested songs of the day. They would play them all at 7 o'clock. And there was a good couple of weeks there where we were, you know, the second or most requested song. Uh, we had a song called Friday Night in Philadelphia. And um, that song would play all the time on there. So it, it really it really kind of built us up regionally. And um, it allowed us to, to get on the bigger tours. And then we took the Great Ghost out to promote the album. And we ended up scoring an opening slot with the infamous Ashley Simpson. That was going to be one of my questions. So, I mean, like, your band, and I, I know your band well, and, I mean, after listening to the album and after, you know, following your career, how did you guys ever get matched up with her? And now, <laughs> I have two questions. One is that, and the second one was, is this before or after her infamous stint on Saturday Night Live? Oh, unfortunately, it was all after. It was after the Saturday Night Live oh. thing, and, and after the, uh, I think she had, like, a... Uh, Orange Bowl or something. <laughs> but she had a couple things that were that were bad. I remember um, watching that performance on Saturday Night Live live and thinking to myself, "Holy shit, I can't believe yeah. she just did that." But I mean, like, what was like your like experience on that tour at that time? Well, I mean, there was one thing that was funny. If you want to backtrack a little bit, is when sure. we were building when we were building the bus. I would go in, like, I would go in to get a, a glass of iced tea or something. And my sister would, would be watching the Ashley Simpson um, show, um, her oh, yeah. reality show that she had on MTV. And I would just sit there for a couple minutes and watch it and be like, this, this show's so stupid. But I remember like, I, would st- I was starting to get to know like her and, and the people in her band. And then fast forward a couple months, these same people were partying on the Great Ghost, the one that I was building when I was watching. Oh my God. <laughs> and... We did one show. Um, uh, what we would do a lot of times is we would play the play the shows at night with Ashley, and then Pepper's Ghost would go on to the next city, and then we would do. We had like a, a high school tour that we would do during the day in the same cities, and we would basically go in and play a couple songs, at, you know, for a high school assembly. And a lot of times there would be like a question and answer segment afterwards. And um, there was one show where her Ashley's drummer got so wasted that he missed he missed the um, you know like the call to, to get back to the bus and, and get to the next town so they Jeez. left them they left them and, and we were staying a little bit later so he he traveled to the next town with us <laughs> really and he was just he was just passed out in one of our bunks and, and now, is this this uh, not the same drummer that messed up on 
national TV, though, is it? No, no. Okay, they fired that guy, right? <clears throat> yeah. Okay. And then, yeah, and then, um, you know, we're doing these shows, and these people are asking us all these questions about, like, what's Ashley's band like, and all this stuff. I'm like, you have no idea. The drummer's passed out out in your parking lot. Like, Jesus. <laughs> so that must have been, like, so a really got, strange time for your band at that at that point, you know what I mean? Like, I just... Yeah, I mean, we, we, we got hooked up with her because we basically had the same booking agency, and and she needed some opening slots and she was kind of trying to distance she was going for a rock and roll vibe though wasn't she like she was trying to go like I'm a hardcore rocker yeah she was trying to distance herself from like her sister Jessica so she you know she had her hair dyed black and her band was all like punk rock dudes um but man that was the time of my life I mean you would think it was like a strange pairing but it ended up being really good because I mean our our audience really was teenage girls and um (laughs) <laughs> you know everybody that was going to Ashley Simpson's show was like all teenage girls and a couple like unhappy boyfriends and maybe some fathers but it really um, it really hit our target audience and we, we just had a, we had such a great time it got to the point where Ashley would call us every night whenever we were done our shows to find out where Pepper's Ghost was hanging out <laughs> just be like where are you guys hanging out tonight because I know that's where it's fun <laughs> So what it became like a positive experience then. I mean, you're also playing in, in decent-sized venues with excellent sound, right? Every show, as you can imagine, was like a tower theater, um, like a sold-out tower theater-sized place. Um, one of the highlights was we got to play the, the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. I mean, that's just a legendary room. And one of my favorite photographs ever that was taken of me playing was in the Ryman. It's a shot of... The guy who took the photo knew that during my drum solo, I, I would stand up at certain points and address the crowd, and they would turn on the house lights. And he, he at this point, had known it. And he snapped a shot of me, like standing up with my hands in the air, and you can see the whole crowd at the Ryman Auditorium. And um, yeah, that's just that's actually one of the highlights of my career. Really, was to be able to play such a legendary. It's really a country room, but just to get to yeah. play something like that. So um, Pepper's Ghost returns back to Philadelphia, and I think this is uh, maybe around like 2006. This is um, the next time that you and I crossed paths. It was a night at not the Grape Room now, but I'm so confused with all the names, but whatever that big nightclub was called, that it was called the Grape Street, um, I'm drawing a blank here, but the larger venue that was down by the river, which had an excellent backstage area. I mean, Scooter did the, the monitors. Uh-huh. Your your band played that night. I remember um, it well, and I believe around this time you guys put out the EP for the Vet, and um, yeah. this was um, an EP with about four different songs on it. We're gonna take a listen to uh, a track from Pepper's Ghost off that album. This is Four Litter Friend on the Bobcast. <laughs> Just four letter friends 
back here on the Bobcast. So Four Letter Friend also has a really cool video you can check out. Um, I think you guys did this all yourself. Um, a lot of stop motion type of uh, you know effects put into it where the band is like basically moving all around. Uh, you guys shot that in Philadelphia, right? We did. Um, yeah, I mean, at, at this point in our career, we, um, we were kind of fed up with our record label. And um, they were kind of like stalling us. I, I don't think they wanted to keep spending money to put it down the road, and they were making us wait around. So we got to the point where we finally got out of that record contract. Fortunately, and we started doing things on our own. And we recorded the Vet EP on our own. And also, that video that uh, is for that song um, was shot in Philadelphia. Um, there's actually I, there's actually a making of that video on YouTube. It's like all the behind the scenes explains how it was made. But um, yeah, that was shot in Philly by Mark Melchior uh, from the White Magnets and Silver Tide. It's oh wow, he's got. He's got many talents, that man. I mean, he plays a million instruments, but he's also a great engineer, studio engineer. He's, he's amazing at film. Um, pretty yeah. much anything he wants to do, he's good at it. Since uh, the last podcast, I've been listening to the Like Magnets album on my iPod, and yeah, he's definitely really talented as far as... Uh, he produces all those tracks himself, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, even like in his, in his film world, he's done a lot of stuff for like Discovery, um... Yeah, he's just a very talented man. So I guess shortly thereafter, tell me, like, when did Pepper's Ghost decide to um, basically call it quits? Well, basically, we did that that EP, and then shortly thereafter, we, we did, um, we recorded a live show on a really off night at, at, at the Grape Street, that, that big room on when it was still on me. We had, a, we had a show recorded on like a really cold Tuesday night. There was nobody there. But the recording came out great. And we ended up releasing it um, as a semi-live album. We're playing live, but we also like added all these like crazy sound effects in between songs. Kind of like, like Kiss that. Alive? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, we basically started touring ourselves after that. We would, we would actually just, everybody in the band would pick like a region of America and it was their uh, responsibility to fill the shows that's that's a cool idea yeah to fill certain rooms during a certain time period like we were like okay at this time period we're going to be in Chicago and you're going to take care of that and someone else will do this so we're basically at this point just doing everything ourselves and um, it's hard to do it is hard to do but it was also great because it was like you know if, if you had you were responsible for any successes, you know. If anything worked you out, owned it, it was yeah. Like, yeah, we we did this, and um, and we did that for a little while, and, and we were we were promoting both the Vet EP and and uh, let the players have the ball, which was the, the name of the um, the live album that we had put out. But it got to a point where when we came back, um, our bass player Dave Hartley, who's now in the War on Drugs. Um, he kind of got he kind of got burned out on it and decided that he wanted to move on. And at this point, you know, you're kind of coming down over the mountain. It's like you have the thrill of playing, you know, thirty five hundred seat theaters every night to screaming girls. To now we're kind of back, you know, playing an empty club on a Tuesday night. Yeah, you know? and it, it kind of wore it wore on him first, and he moved on. And he was like at this point, like the fourth different bass player <laughs> to move on and it was like we almost, act, we almost actually took on Brian Weaver from Silver Tide yeah. and, um, and, then, and then that's when we kind of realized it like you know what we're all kind of tired you know we were starting to call in favors to the same people that we had done years ago it's like hey so and so can you get us on an opening slot at the TLA or, or this or that and we were like it started to kind of feel like we had our tail in between our legs and um yeah, you know, I mean, around that time, I mean, in my band experienced uh, kind of the same thing. Like, we were playing shows where the crowd was, you know, a lot of people in the audience, and all of a sudden people stopped coming, and it, it was really a struggle to get people to buy music, because I, I feel as if around that time, that's when the digital music like, took over, and people just weren't looking to buy an album and shows no more. They just wanted to get a track here and there. Yeah. And, you know, the I guess torrents came into 
the picture and bit torrents and all sorts of things and it's just really a shame because so many great bands in philadelphia you know have come and gone and um in my opinion uh, pepper's ghost was definitely one of them but um yeah. your musical career didn't stop there you actually um i guess somebody also called you eventually for a favor to fill in on drums a band yes, um from the area um who you know basically uh also put their own you know digital yeah. imprint yeah well it was upon jab roses and i was probably one of the biggest fans of Pawn jab roses i mean I, I always got along with them really well and i would always go to their shows we always played with them. pepper's ghost and Pawn jab roses always played together and um i would just always go to their shows and eventually i started being called to fill in really especially out of town their drummer didn't really want to go out of town, so I would play all the all the stuff that wasn't in Philly. And then eventually, I just became the drummer. It's a shame that there's not like a documentary on the the two bands together. Uh, have you ever seen the documentary Dig? No. Okay, so this is documentary. Uh, I recommend it for you and the Bombcast listeners out there. I saw this documentary probably in 2005, and it's about the the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown massacre. And it's about how two bands kind of revolve off one another. And yeah. both of them just, I mean, they, they kind of have the same struggles. They, they, they get to a certain level of success. But it all culminates with the Brian Jonestown Massacre um, beating the shit out of each other on the stage at the Viper Room for an industry showcase. So for the Bobcast listeners, definitely check that out. So you join up with Pawn Shop Roses, and uh, you guys are, I think we, Downtown Harvest actually played a show with you guys up in... Um, I don't know, media or I don't know where we were, um, some sort of like brewery or something like that. Yeah, I can never get away from you, Bob. We, we, we've always revolved. We, we should have been at a band together all this all these years. Yeah. But um, Pawn Shop Roses uh, definitely, um, I mean, they won a YouTube competition, I remember, and I also recall distinctly tuning in one morning to see them uh, on Good Morning America. Yeah, and they got Diane Sawyer to, I mean, the name of the song they played was called get so hard and uh <laughs> they were they were they were so proud that they got diane sawyer to say get so hard that's great you know, first thing first thing in the morning <laughs> did uh the person who uh edited it and uh, i guess like directed the the video that won them that youtube uh word was that scooter it was scooter landing it's a different scooter okay cool i, I thought it was scooter shit. best and i always heard yeah. a rumor that scooter did and i'm like i didn't know scooter did that too besides playing drums but yeah, yeah pawn shop yeah. roses you know great band name first off you know i mean a play on words yeah. and it definitely i mean it had like a really i mean the band has such a distinctive rock and roll sound that both sounded new and old at the same time classical um yeah for for the bobcast listeners out there let's take a listen to hard-headed woman by pawn shop roses here on the bobcast Don't you look away Better study that expression 
back here with Zill. That was Pawn Shop Roses here on the Bobcast. So, you know, all great bands sometimes come to an end, and sometimes bands get back together. I mean, what can you tell the Bobcast listeners about Pawn Shop Roses' current status? Well, yeah, I mean, Pawn Shop stopped playing as an original band, but um, we kept going on as a cover band. We do a lot of Stones covers called the Dead Flowers. What do you call yourself? <laughs> as the, as the, you're called the Dead Flowers? Yeah, okay. after the uh, Rolling Stones song. So <clears throat> we, we still play together. We're still together all the time. <clears throat> but recently we decided to do, we actually got asked if we would play this show as the Pawn Shop Roses. And we're like, you know what? It's been a while. We're, we're kind of, you know, we're kind of Jones in the place and originals. So we agreed to uh, <clears throat> join Davey Knowles, who used to be in a band called the Backdoor Slam. Uh, we're playing at the Hard Rock Cafe on August 13th. And uh, I know it's not until August. It's, you know, months in advance, but they did put tickets on sale now. Plenty of time for people to prepare. Don't go on vacation that weekend. Uh, so where can they get tickets again? Uh, the best place to get them is to go to ticketfly.com. Just type in Pawn Shop Roses. Excellent. So we've covered a lot here tonight on the Bobcast. We've covered some urban legends as far as Chapters <laughs> Ghost go. We've covered uh, the game Paperboy, which, uh, you know, I, I was actually in the Plymouth Meeting Mall recently, and I was looking at a Nintendo thinking, you know, I might just have to get one of them so I can show my son one day what gaming was really all about. Yeah, We've, what uh, I had to go through. What we had to go through. I mean, blowing into those cartridges, people would look at you like a, like an idiot. Like the Kids today have no – you can't blow into an iPhone. It's always going to work. Right. So we've listened to Dead End. We've listened to K-Floor. We've listened to Pepper's Ghost. And uh, here on the Bombcast, uh, you go ahead out and you can buy a Pawn Shop Roses tickets tonight and uh, see them in August. Um, yeah. Zill, it's been a pleasure to have you here on the show. Yeah. Uh, in my eyes, you were always a, a very talented drummer, and I'm glad you're still doing your thing. Yeah, and that, that Dead End song is the only time it's ever been on the Internet, so it's an exclusive. You hear that, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen? It's an exclusive here on the Bobcast. My guest tonight has been Zill. My name's Bob, and this has been another episode of... 